0: from brown cow studios in montana this is news nerds the news podcast i have some news for you i am entering the npr student podcast challenge this year and i am about to submit my podcast so on this week's episode we look back on some of my favorite interviews from the past year while I'm finishing up my student podcast. We'll hear my interview with our former Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez, my interview with climate expert Brian Von Herzen, and the news quiz that I trout out with Debbie from New York City. So sit back and enjoy this special episode of News Nerds. I'm your host, Ezra Graham. To start off this episode, let's listen back to my interview with Alberto Gonzalez. He was the former Attorney General of the United States under the George W. Bush administration. My guest this week is Alberto Gonzalez. He was the Attorney General for George W. Bush, and he has served in numerous positions throughout the government. Welcome.
1: Ezra, it's a pleasure to be with you.
0: So what was your introduction to the Republican Party? And then why did you choose to enter the Republican Party?
1: Oh, you know, I guess um, I really, was, growing up in Houston, really wasn't involved politically. My parents uh, weren't interested in politics. Uh, they were just concerned about paying for the next, you know, meal for our family. I grew up in a large family uh, in Houston but after I became a lawyer and started practicing law in Houston I started getting involved in various organizations and started meeting uh, a lot of people in politics and there was a lot about the Republican Party in Texas in particular that I, I found attractive and uh, so I just I, I became involved in, in politics um, and really that that interest was solidified when I met George W. Bush um, he was running for governor in 1994 and um, I think I would have supported him if he had been a Democrat, quite frankly. I liked him as a person. I liked the policies that he campaigned on. And so that really uh, sort of solidified my desire to support the party. That doesn't mean that I, that I agree with everything the party stands for. Uh, there are, I have serious disagreements with some of the things that, that the, the, of the party platform. And I think, I, I, don't, I think everyone needs to think for themselves uh, when they think about, you know, do I wanna be a Republican or a Democrat independent? when they look at a candidate, I think, don't just look at labels, look at really what they stand for.
0: So you were nominated for attorney general uh, by George W. Bush, uh, and then you were attorney general for several years. What was the typical day as attorney general?
1: There is no typical day as attorney general. You know, the attorney general uh, is the chief law enforcement officer of the country, the lead representative of the White House and and the president on law enforcement issues. Uh, and typically I you know, I did a lot of traveling. We have representatives and embassies all around the world, FBI, DEA, uh, Marshall Service representatives around the world. So I traveled a lot, visited over 30 countries, went up to the Hill a lot to testify. Uh, the, I always uh, talk, the Congress is very interested in what the Department of Justice is involved with. And so I spent a lot of time on the Hill and dealing with the media. Uh, as I traveled around the country, I would meet with uh, various offices around the country, but also doing a lot of interviews uh, like like this one, uh, just reaching out to the public, giving them an opportunity to ask me questions and also to explain exactly what what the department was doing.
0: And you mentioned uh, in my first question that you do not uh, support some of some of the Republican party's um, views, so when President Trump ran for office, did you? Did your view change um, in the 2020 election about uh, parts of the re- Republican Party?
1: Oh, I, I think it's fair to say that I disagree with some of the policies under the Trump administration. But, you know, I disagree with some of the policies under President Bush, you don't, as, as I said, I think in the answer to the first question, I, I don't, I, I'm not sure it's, it's healthy to agree totally 100% with policies uh, of a party or a particular candidate. But of course, the president is elected by the people to make these decisions. And so the best that you can do as an advisor is simply provide your best advice. And then the president makes a decision as to whether or not to accept that advice. Because in the end, he's the one that's totally accountable to the American people for those decisions
0: when trump uh this last year when trump refused to concede his election uh after biden was certified by the electoral college and then when congress uh certified the results what was your reaction to trump's refusal to concede
1: you know i i I'm, i've been pretty consistent uh, i think the weekend after the election actually in november i publicly stated i i think i think that uh Senator Biden has won this election, and my view has been consistent. Obviously, President Trump has the right to challenge uh, election results. He, he tried to do that, uh, and he failed. And I think when you look at uh, his attorney general, Bill Barr, saying there was no evidence of massive fraud, when you have Chris Krebs, who, who runs the, the cybersecurity uh, uh agency for, the, for President Trump, saying that this is probably the most secure election ever when you have even Republican state officials uh, confirming that these ele- the election results are solid and we stand behind those results, I think it's fair to say that uh, I, was, I was disappointed. I mean, obviously, once the pre- President Trump has an opportunity to present his evidence in court and the court disagrees with what he's saying, uh, you know, and, and President Trump continues to say the election was stolen, uh, I'd have to say that I'm disappointed in that.
0: And from a legal standpoint, uh, did Trump have enough evidence and uh, en- enough, the, the legal standpoint to try to uh, challenge the uh, electoral results of numerous states that he lost in?
1: Well, if he did, he didn't, he didn't, his arguments weren't persuasive in the courts. Again, he had the opportunity, he had a legal team, they made filings in courts uh, in various states and he was unsuccessful, and so you, I would think that you would present your best evidence. That evidence was rejected, or, or basically, the court's deciding there is no evidence here. So that leads me to believe that there wasn't massive fraud, and that the election wasn't stolen. Now, uh, again, I think President Trump has a right to challenge if he if he believes the election is stolen. You know, he needs to present the evidence, um, and obviously, it's important for his for the sake of his voters to do that. But he, but he didn't do that, and I have, I have to conclude that the reason he didn't do that is because he couldn't do it. There was no evidence, at least not sufficient evidence, to overturn the results of this election.
0: So I wasn't around for the Bush administration, but I would say <laughs> the Trump administration was different from the Bush administration. It sounds like they were very different.
1: Every administration is different because every president is different and every president is is governing in a different environment, dealing with different challenges, dealing with different congresses. And so, yes, they're all going to be different. And even if they're the same party, every administration is going to be different.
0: And then Trump now has been impeached twice by the US House of Representatives. Uh, The second time was after they concluded that uh, he had incited the the mob on the Capitol. What was your first, what was your reaction to the mob? I mean, we haven't seen anything like that, certainly in my lifetime. What was your reaction to that?
1: neither in my lifetime, let me just say that. It's a little bit longer than your in your lifetime. Uh, I had a series of reactions. Uh, first, uh, it was shock. I was shocked to see it, that the, the Capitol could breach so easily. I was saddened to see it happen. And then, um, honestly, I was angry. It shouldn't, it shouldn't happen. And so I had, a, you know, like most Americans, I had, a, you know, a series of, of reactions to what I witnessed on January 6th.
0: So do, do you support the impeachment of Donald Trump?
1: Well, you know, the, uh, uh, of course the decision to impeach the president is made by, by the House and they consider various evidence and I'm not gonna second guess the House. Uh, they've made the decision that the evidence, uh, a bipartisan decision that, that the evidence does support uh, at least one article of impeachment was, which was voted on is now, uh, I understand this week, gonna be uh, transmitted to the Senate. So,
0: it, earlier in this interview you mentioned your early connection with uh, George W Bush when he was running uh, for public office in Texas how did this shape your career in in uh, politics and as a government official
1: well you know George W Bush fundamentally changed the trajectory of my life I mean I was I was a successful lawyer so I think I would have I'd like to think that that I would have had a, a successful life working at a big firm in Houston. Uh, but I, I realized that I, I wanted more challenges. I wanted I wanted to do something where I felt I was making a difference. So when I had the opportunity to work for him when he was elected governor in 1994, to work for him as a general counsel, I, I jumped at the opportunity. And from there, I became secretary of state. I became a justice on the Texas Supreme Court. I then became White House counsel when he became president. And then, of course, attorney general. So. Um, I think it's fair to say that he's, he's had a tremendous impact on my life, and I'm grateful for the opportunities that he gave me. Now, of course, um, when you're given an opportunity, you have an obligation to work as hard as you can in order to be successful. And I'd like to think that it's because I was, I was willing to work hard and I was successful that President Bush continued to give me opportunities, both in state government and then later on in federal government.
0: There were some quite major events that happened over the Bush administration, including the attack on the Twin Towers on September 11th, 9-11. What was it like to see the country in that state? It must have been terrible.
1: It was historic, there's no question about it. And uh, uh, I, I'm grateful. Uh, when I think about my service, uh, I'm often asked, what are you most proud of? What I'm most proud of is the role that I played, however small it may have been. In helping President Bush keep our country safe, and you're right, we, uh, you know this was an unprecedented uh, event, unprecedented attack, uh, and we had to make some very controversial, some very tough decisions to protect the security of our country. And one of the things I always admire about President Bush is he's a decision maker, always willing to make the hard decision, willing to accept the consequences, knowing that some of them are going to be second-guessed and criticized but doing what he thinks is best. And that's all you can ask of any individual in government service. And that is do the very best and do things for the right, make decisions for the right reason, not for personal political gain, but what is right and what is best for the people.
0: In 2005, when an opening arose on the United States Supreme Court, uh, there was some speculation that President Bush would nominate you as the new uh, judge. In this case, he nominated john roberts um, did Did Bush actually consider you for the seat on the Supreme Court?
1: Yeah, well, let me first say that I think the Roberts nomination was uh, outstanding. I have a great deal of respect uh, for John Roberts, and uh, I think that was a very wise choice. Yes, there was some consideration about me going on the court. I obviously had a close relationship with President Bush. I had been a justice on the Texas Supreme Court. Uh, it was widely speculated that President Bush wanted to put the first Hispanic on the Supreme Court, and so I was viewed as a likely candidate. Uh, I also understand that I that I was I was vetted by people within the Bush administration about possibly going on the court. So to answer your question, yes, I was considered as far as I know. But in in the end, um, you know. Uh, nominating someone who's been White House counsel and involved in the most controversial decisions, if you get nominated to the U.S. Supreme Court, what does that do? It puts into play all those controversial decisions the president made and that you may have been advising on. And I, so it would have been a very, very difficult confirmation, no question about it. So when you have an outstanding person, a candidate like John Roberts waiting in the wings, it makes it makes all the sense in the world to go forward with John Roberts. And I, you know, I think He'll, he'll prove to be one of President Bush's, uh, I think, most long-lasting uh, 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 decisions as President of the United States.
0: Yeah, and he's, he's uh, been a part of some historic events like swearing in uh, President Biden. Um, and then at the end of your term as the Attorney General in the Bush administration, there was the Senate Democrats, including uh, Chuck Schumer sought your resignation, and then a similar bill was uh, introduced into the House. Why do you think these concerns were brought up about your career as the Attorney General?
1: Because um, uh, many of the concerns dealt with um, decisions that were made when I was in the White House and not as Attorney General. Uh, And I think it was a way to express displeasure at some of those decisions by going after me. And I think that uh, also um, there were certain there were concerns raised about the fact that there were U.S. attorneys that were removed from office. All of that was investigated. Uh, I was cleared of any kind of wrongdoing. And what it turned out to be is that much of this was political. And unfortunately, that's what sometimes happens in Washington D.C. Things get political. And I think this is an example of, of uh, this is such one example.
0: And then these these calls for resignation ultimately did uh, make you decide to resign from the office. Why did you decide to resign?
1: Well, the truth of the matter is uh, I, I, I stepped down because President Bush asked me to step down. He was worried about what the Democrats were going to do to me that summer, uh, that we had received intelligence that they were gonna really come after me. And he didn't wanna see that happen to me. He felt that, that I had withstood enough criticism and that it was probably time to step down, and that's why I stepped down. I didn't step down because I did anything wrong. I didn't step down because I was afraid of, of the consequences. I knew I'd done nothing wrong. I was quite willing to, to continue on, to soldier on. But the truth of the matter is, that kind of disruption, distraction for the Department of Justice is not very good. There's so much good work, so much work that has to be done by good people. And so I, I think it was a right decision that President Bush made to ask me to step down so that the Department of Justice could continue to focus on on the needs of the American people.
0: Where do you think that situation could have escalated to?
1: Well, I think that uh, I, 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 there's no, I, I don't think, I think the most it could have been escalated to was simply a motion for censure, you know, uh, a resolution of censure or something like that. But it, I don't believe it ever would have come to that. Because again, at the end of the day, there was nothing inappropriate for that. Uh, I was involved with.
0: In an interview with the Wall Street Journal uh, later you said for some reason I am portrayed as the one who is evil in formulating policies that people disagree with Um, and why do you think that was the effect on your career? Did you have uh, trouble getting a job after that that event?
1: The the main uh, challenge about me pursuing employment afterwards was that there was this ongoing uh, Inspector General investigation at the Department of Justice. What they were doing is looking at the removal of these U.S. attorneys and it was taking a period of time and people were reluctant to to employ me until that investigation was was final and it took several months and so uh, it, it understandable that it would take some time and so that thing worked itself out and I think now I'm in a place where I'm very, very happy here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a Dean of the Law School. And I get to talk to young people that, uh, through uh, situations like this, this podcast with you, Ezra.
0: Well, Alberto Gonzalez, thank you for speaking to, to me today.
1: It's my pleasure. Thank you.
0: That was Alberto Gonzalez. He served in numerous jobs uh, in the government, including Attorney General to George W. Bush. He's also been in Texas politics, including the Secretary of State of Texas and on the Texas Supreme Court. Now let's go to my interview with Brian Von Herzen. He is the executive director at the Climate Foundation. Dr. Brian Von Herzen is the executive director at the Kleiman Foundation, and he joins me from Australia. Thank you for joining me.
2: Hi, Ezra. How are you today?
0: Good. So you were in the 2040 documentary. It's a great documentary. You should check it out if you haven't. So what went into your part in the 2040 documentary?
2: Well, I worked with filmmaker Damon Gamow, and he actually came and visited us on Cape Cod, Massachusetts and we were just putting together the planning stages for marine permaculture, and we were testing it out. We had a small sailboat off of Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and we actually tested some equipment there with uh, my postdoctoral assistant, colleague, and fellow, um, Joe Rauch, who graduated from Brandeis University. And together, we tested out the upwelling pipe, a wave energy pump, and uh, associated equipment for, for sea trials, as it were. So that was a wonderful start to what we were doing. And then with filmmaker, Damon Gamow, we were able to discuss how it'd work. And one of my friends had the 39 foot Hinkley sailboat. And we suggested that we use that as a, a way to, to talk about marine permaculture. And actually we used a similar sailboat to actually do the field testing for the equipment. You know, You test something out in the laboratory and then you've got to go test it in the ocean. And so the first thing we did was test it in the ocean off of Cape Cod. And then we made plans to test it in the Puerto Rican trench, which is more than 3,000 feet deep. Pretty amazing, huh?
0: So in the 2040 documentary, you talked to the filmmakers about seaweed and um, we'll get more into that later. So I know that you're in Brisbane, Australia right now. Where has your research taken you across the globe?
2: Well, you know, people like to say life is what happens to you as you make other plans. So we developed plans for deploying marine permaculture in the Philippines, and we have been deploying it in the Philippines and helping out a quarter million seaweed farmers who are on the front lines of climate disruption. Imagine you're living in Montana or, let's say, Texas, and you have no well water, you have no irrigation. Those crops aren't going to do very well because they don't have enough water. Same thing for seaweed farms. If you don't have enough deep water, you don't have nitrogen and phosphorus and other essential elements that are needed for healthy growth, like essential vitamins. And so what we try to do is restore overturning circulation, restore the upwelling, and restore that provision of deep water nutrients that are essential for seaweeds to grow well. And basically, it's the difference between dry cropland and irrigation. As you know, you can grow many times as many plants if you've got irrigation, and the same thing is true in the water. But we're irrigating with deep water, so that's what we did in the Philippines. And it turns out, you know, as you know, there's this huge pandemic going. We stayed in the Western Pacific. We went to Singapore, and we eventually got a distinguished talent visa in Australia to further marine permaculture work in Southeast Asia, with our overseas base here in Australia, and that. is exactly where our research has taken us to date. So that's why I'm talking to you from Queensland, Australia.
0: The Climate Foundation has put effort into many programs and projects. So where are these conducted and what issues did these projects deal with?
2: Well, they deal with, I would say, three things. The first is food security for 10 billion people because You know, in your adulthood, it's quite likely that we will get close to 10 billion people on this planet. And the question is, how do we feed them sustainably and in a way that provides not only enough food for humanity, but enough food for nature, enough uh, ecosystem services, if you will, to keep The biodiversity that we care about like kelp forests and coral reefs and the fish themselves to keep them alive so it's really all about enough food food for humanity and enough food for those ecosystems that we depend on for our biodiversity and our very survival and so it's about keeping those ecosystems alive it's about finally measuring the carbon export out of the surface ocean into the middle and deep ocean of each of those And the same happens in the soils that happens in the seas. It turns out, you know, when you see a plant on land, that's like the tip of the iceberg. 80% of the plant and the microbiome and the microbes are all underground. So when you're seeing an iceberg, you're only seeing the top 20%. When you're seeing a plant, you're only seeing 20% of the story, right? Because you got the plant above ground, you've got the plant below ground, and then you've got the worms, the nematodes, the fungi, the bacteria, and the other microbes that make up a healthy soil. And the key to regenerative agriculture is really um, healthy soil microbial communities. So from that perspective, you know, I think it's really important to um, unify, if you will. Paul Revere, our founding forefather of our country, once said, once if by land, twice if by sea. He was talking about the American Revolution. But I like to apply it to how do we regenerate life in soils and how do we regenerate life in the seas? And that life is exactly what's going to balance our carbon budget and get us back to a healthy climate.
0: So all these issues relate back to the big problem of climate change. What is the approach of you and your colleagues on climate change?
2: Well, I think we need to move from... On climate change, we've got to rebalance carbon in our lifetimes, and balancing carbon means getting excess carbon out of the atmosphere and other greenhouse gases as well, like methane, that include carbon, and back into the seas from once it came and back into the soils from where it, all, it can also be stored. And so it's really about fundamentally addressing, I mean, did you know that with the Syrian war, there are basically 50 million climate refugees? You know, that Syrian war was caused by a drought. That drought arguably came from a climate disruption, and that climate disruption was likely anthropogenic. So the point is that it seems like it's just a war in Syria, but in reality, the farmers didn't have enough water, the government cut them off, they had to go to the cities, there was a lot of unrest, and a revolution started. And can you imagine 50 million climate refugees hitting the United States? I mean, that would be enormous. And yet Europe and other countries had to absorb 50 million climate refugees just in the last decade or two. So with that in mind, you know, what, how are we gonna address the hundreds of millions of climate refugees that we can expect in the coming decades when the sea level rises and Bangladesh goes underwater mostly? The Maldives, that's a, a country that's about one meter above sea level. So when sea level rises a meter, that country will be underwater. And we've got to address these issues to avoid hundreds of millions of climate refugees who may be starving because, quite frankly, the rice crop in China failed this year. And it failed because of this big flood. And you've got a billion people, more than a billion people, whose staple crop is rice. So if we don't have enough you know, rice, if, if China can't feed itself in rice, that increases the demand for rice. Philippines needs to buy rice on the international market. So we've got to create enough food for humanity and enough food for nature. And that's so much of what this is all about. We wanna keep those ecosystems alive and thriving, including the Great Barrier Reef, including coral reefs around the world, and the kelp forest. Did you know the kelp forest off California, Northern California has dropped 95% in the last two decades because the water's too warm, nutrient levels are too low, and the production just plummeted. And there were other ecosystem shifts like sea urchins but fundamentally, if we don't have that overturning circulation, we lose the primary production. That's the algae, the microalgae, plankton, and the macroalgae, seaweed, kelps. And if we don't have a healthy ocean, well, that's, that's more than half the oxygen we breathe. So fundamentally, we need to keep the oceans healthy and alive so that we can stay healthy and alive.
0: So this year on the COVID pandemic, there was a reducing carbon emissions because of uh, the lack of travel um, because of the pandemic. So how has this year affected the, the carbon emissions?
2: Well, it did drop. I would say in many countries, this is the first year that we've actually been on track to meet our Paris commitments. And I'm very happy that uh, President-elect Biden is committed to America rejoining the Paris Accords because imagine getting 195 countries to all agree to do one thing. Imagine how hard that is. And uh, my colleague, friend and colleague, Sir David King, represented the United Kingdom in Paris and helped to establish the Paris Accords, the Paris Commitments, where each country commits to reducing its carbon footprint over time and that is just huge. So, you know, I'm really happy that America is rejoining the Paris Accords, the Paris commitments, and I'm I'm glad in some ways the silver lining on a terrible pandemic is that we are decarbonizing, but now we need to come out of this with a strong focus not on fossil fuels, but the strong focus needs to be on renewable energy energy storage, and moving towards a uh, fully regenerative farming practice, and fully regenerating life in the ocean, rather than extracting life from the ocean, we can regenerate life in the ocean with technologies like marine permaculture.
0: You share an idea within the 2040 documentary about these things called seaweed platforms. What are the mechanics of a seaweed platform, and what do they do?
2: Well, in particular, it's not just any platform, it's, it's a marine permaculture platform. So permaculture is about living in equilibrium with the forest. It means instead of chopping down the forest and destroying it, you're actually selectively harvesting things from the forest, but also helping the forest retain its biodiversity and thrive. So it's how, does, how do humans live not apart from nature? How do humans live with nature? How are, are humans a part of nature? And it's that idea that permaculture is all about. It turns out one of the discoverers of permaculture, Bill Mollison, actually got his early insights from the kelp forest off eastern Tasmania. He then applied those insights to the rainforest of Tasmania and the marsupials that lived there got everything they needed habitat, food, everything they needed from the forest, and they did it in, in harmony with the forest. And he said, well, you know, if a marsupial can do that, Why can't humanity live in equilibrium with the forest? Why can't we live in balance with our natural forest ecosystems? And that applies to kelp forests as well as terrestrial forests. And that's really the inspiration behind it. So, you know, we've got these problems. The water is too warm. The nutrient levels are too low. And if we have a platform that provides a substrate for the kelp forest, like a a base for the kelp forest, then it can grow up from that platform and if we irrigate that kelp forest with enough deep, cool water, it can get all the nutrients it needs. And we should be able to grow a healthy kelp forest out of that. That's what we're testing out with these platforms. And we're doing that from the Tasmanian area where we've got giant macrocystis kelp that grows well. It grows about 70 feet up to the surface and then another 120 feet laterally. Uh, that's how long these can be, almost 200 feet long. So. It's really amazing to see those from underwater. I'm very fortunate to be a scuba diver, and I go underwater. And actually, I spend half the time just snorkeling and freediving. I do more of that than scuba diving. But being able to go diving, like even freediving on a kelp forest is amazing. My father was doing this the year I was born. He was an oceanographer at uh, Scripps Oceanographic Institution in La Jolla, California, down in San Diego. And the year I was born, he was able to, you know, go snorkeling around on a kelp forest and sustainably harvest small amounts of fish and invertebrates and bring them home for dinner. You know, it's just kind of a normal thing. But with a lot of, uh, some degree of overfishing, but also climate disruption, we've lost many of those ecosystem resources now. And so we've got to actually figure out how do we get back to a healthy climate with healthy ecosystems like kelp forests offshore. These platforms can provide the ecosystem services offshore May no longer be present on the shore, and that's why you know until we get permits to actually grow the seaweed right next to land, especially in California, it takes a long time. We can grow them offshore, and those health healthy you know sardines, sea lions, even seabirds can thrive in the kelp forest offshore, even if we have another marine heat wave. That's the idea behind it.
0: What is the marine life like in Australia?
2: Oh, it's amazing. It's, it's really incredible. First of all, the, the animals here and the plants are both really incredible, but we've got the Great Barrier Reef up north, and then it's got giant clams. Did you know, they're giant clams that are like five feet across, like bigger than my arm span. And what you can do is you can swim down near them and they're very sensitive to light. So if you wave your hand over the top of them, they'll close. It's like closing this giant stone, you know, clam. It's just amazing. I mean, you don't want to get your hand stuck in there, that's for sure. <laughs> but it's really fun to, like, wave your hand over them. And they're, the lips of the clam actually have zooxanthellae, those little photosynthetic-producing organisms. And they're bright, iridescent green and blue and purple and every color of rainbow. And so depending on the clam, they'll have these particular colors. So you wave your hand over the clam. Those light sensors can tell something's moving. So they retract their lips. And if they get irritated enough, they'll go... <clears throat> and close up, and it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like somebody moved the giant stone door, you know, and cl- closed it. You know, it's like this giant stone moving like this. It moves pretty quickly and forcibly, so you really, definitely don't want to be inside there when it happens, but it's nice to just kind of wave your hand over the clam and, you know, watch, watch it react, and overall, that's just an example of the amazing sea life. I've seen, I took a picture of a manta ray 12 months ago that was flying along an underwater cliff that was a thousand feet tall, right? So I was like flying along and I was just like, I was just swimming along like a hundred feet deep with my scuba gear. And then suddenly out of the blue, out of the blue comes flying in this manta ray with a 14 foot wingspan and he flies right underneath me. I was shooting my GoPro camera and I like got this huge angle shot of this 14 foot flying manta ray flying past me on the cliff. And it was just like the most incredible experience I've ever had, just seeing that. And that's what you get, you know, when you when you go diving down there. You can find amazing things, from manta rays to sharks to sea lions and seals, even elephant seals down south. And the kelp forest is amazing too. There, did you know that there are real sea dragons? Yeah. I mean, like, there's a kelpy monster in in Hogwarts in Harry Potter, like the magical creatures.
0: Mm-hmm. But
2: but if you're, did you know there's a real sea dragon?
0: Isn't that like the the uh, the like seahorse?
2: No. Well, a little, but they're much bigger, and they're much more interesting. So there is actually an animal that lives in the kelp forest in South Australia, and they call it, well, the one in Tasmania is called the weedy sea dragon, and it's this beautiful, big version of a seahorse, and it has all these things. And then in South Australia, it turns out, I think, that the state animal uh, mascot, if you will, Is the leafy sea dragon, and the leafy sea dragon looks like kelp leaves. And so, if you actually go on the web and look up, type up leafy sea dragon, it has on its body all these leaves, and it looks like it's part of a kelp forest. It's just amazing. It's like they going around you. They're they're more than a foot long. I mean, they're really amazing. And here's the amazing part: is that somehow, the male gets all the eggs on its tail, and it's the male that raises the young, not the female. And so I was just blown away. And it's like, it's on my bucket list to see a real sea dragon in the wild, swimming around on a kelp forest. But the problem is the habitat's gone and all of those lovely weedy sea dragons on the east side of Tasmania, well, I haven't seen any because the kelp forest is gone and that's their habitat. That's one of their big habitats. So I've yet to see a beautiful sea dragon here in Australia, but it's on my bucket list and I'm determined to find it. And I'm even more determined to make sure that we can regenerate the habitat that will make sure that we can keep these beautiful sea dragons alive for generations to come.
0: Oh, well, that sounds crazy, those animals. I will definitely research those. So what would happen to marine life like the leafy sea dragon if seaweeds diminished in the area?
2: Well, what would happen to you if your house disappeared? <laughs> I mean, like, this is, that's how big it is. You know, these forage fish, these uh, invertebrates, these creatures depend more on their habitat than food itself. In other words, they can get food from different places, you know, uh, it's important, but if they don't have habitat, they get eaten that night by whatever game fish comes along, you know, could be a, a grouper, could be a sea bass, could be a shark, but if you don't have habitat, you're goners, you know, so it's like, What would you do, if you didn't have a house, how long would you last in a Montana winter?
0: Not at all long.
2: (laughs) That's exactly what you're asking the sea dragons to do. If we take away their kelp forest, and we don't have a house, a habitat for those sea dragons, they're goners. And that's the critical thing. If the seaweeds are diminished, that is their habitat, the kelp forest, the seaweed forest in the tropics. I need to make sure there's enough healthy homes for all of our beloved sea life, like Nemo, there was Nemo and Dory. Remember Dory, the movie? Um, Dory was looking for her parents, right? And she said, kelp forest, blue ocean. I'm looking in the kelp forest. And she found her parents in the kelp forest. That's because that's habitat for small fishes. And so, you know, that was, that was exactly what happens. You know, we need to find, have houses and homes for all of those fishes and sea life that we love and want to keep alive, we need to have enough seaweed.
0: One incredible thing I found in the 2040 movie is that you say that certain types of seaweed can grow half a meter a day. How do seaweeds do this?
2: Well, it's amazing. First of all, they start out 25 meters growing from the, from the seafloor to the surface, and they'll grow another 40 meters horizontally on the surface after they hit the surface. So they effectively grow mostly, surprisingly, at the tips of the seaweed, maybe on the surface and the tips. But what happens is, I think all of the fronds and light collecting, they collect sunlight just like a regular plant and they convert inorganic nutrients into carbohydrates and cellulose and all the biomolecules that a a plant needs and they channel that into the tip and grow the tip of the seaweed. So it's pretty darn amazing. So, you know, when they're 50 meters long, they can grow half a meter, that's about 1% per day. And I've seen some seaweeds pick up 3% or 4% weight per day. In fact, higher numbers are possible as well. So that's how they get a half a meter, and it's amazing. And part of it is, you know, a regular tree to stand tall needs to have cellulose and hemicellulose and lignin, the essential carbohydrates that are needed for um, those trees to stand up tall. Now, a kelp tree needs to be strong enough to withstand all the waves and all the storms and everything else, but it has bubbles. It, they're called pneumatocysts. Those bubbles floated up to the surface, so it doesn't need to support its weight out of water. In other words, if it has a substrate and it grows up towards the surface with some bubbles, Then it'll just have to hold on to the tension of the the seaweed substrate, the bubbles, and the waves that drag it around. So it's like a rope. And so all you need is a rope, like a vine. You know, imagine a Tarzan vine hanging from a tree. The vine has it much better off than the tree does because the vine just has to be rope-like. It can be flexible, and it doesn't need to have lignin as much. It turns out the seaweeds don't have lignin at all. They've got cellulose and hemicellulose. But they don't have to make any lignin, so they grow much faster.
0: So the Climate Foundation will collaborate with 2040 to make the first seaweed platform near Storm Bay. How will you do that?
2: Well, we're planning, we're designing, we have blueprints for a hundred square meter platform that we're uh, planning to put out here in Australia that will test the growing of kelp on the platform, taking it offshore, And then our objective is to bring that water up from the deep and irrigate the seaweed and measure the increasing growth rate from the higher nutrient water. Now, we've done this test in the Philippines, and we got 3 or 4% growth per day, which was great for tropical red seaweeds. And controlled seaweeds didn't grow at all because it was very warm and the nutrient levels were low. And so the seaweed didn't do very well um, because the water was too warm for them. And, and the nutrient levels too low. Now down in Tasmania, we haven't had a chance to upwell yet, but we have been able to put the seaweed near some fish pens where they're growing fish. And those fish give off a lot of ammonia and other nitrates and phosphate. And so that can be used to actually grow the seaweed. And we did that test, and the control seaweeds grew two and a half meters tall during the months of this year. And the test seaweeds grew 10 meters tall, so four times longer. And we're very happy that we got those positive results, and that sets the stage for being able to deploy marine permaculture in Australia. That will be able to upwater, all up water, and demonstrate the superior growth at a hundred meter scale, of hundred square meters, I should say, of this these kelps when they are irrigated with deep water
0: globally what strategic methods must be put in place to curb climate change and its effects on the world?
2: Well, we need to do several things. I think um, we need to decarbonize our civilization. And what that means is that most of the carbon that our civilization emits today needs to be eliminated. That means, you know, going to things like electric cars. It means Thinking before you go flying, again, it means emphasizing biofuel technologies that can ultimately drive Mm -hmm. a lot of our transportation sector. It means thinking twice about fossil fuel power plants and really looking at how can we move towards renewable energy and energy storage. It means insulating our homes really well so that we don't have to turn on the heat all the time in order to stay warm. And if you do a really good job of insulation, particularly in Montana, I've got friends, Amory Levins lives down in Colorado, but he's way up at like 10,000 feet altitude. And he put his house, there's insulation ratings, I think his house is nearly R100, which means 100 times the insulation that you'd have if you just had on the walls of a house without insulation. And imagine having that many layers and blankets. Well, if you've got 100 blankets on you, you're gonna stay pretty warm. You know, in fact, he says, The 100 watts that his little dog gives off, if he gets his dog to go catch a ball and bring it back to him a bunch of times, his dog's giving off 100 watts, and each of us gives off 100 watts, that's enough heat to keep his house warm, because he's got such a well-sealed house. So insulation is like eating your vegetables. It may not be really exciting, but it's what actually makes you healthy and strong. So insulate, insulate, insulate. (laughs) so that's like one really big thing and that's like I don't know 30 or 40 percent of fossil fuel combustion is all about heating houses Mm -hmm. so that's really important in the winter time and then finally uh, managing our food production it turns out the best the best megawatt we we ever produced was the megawatt we never had to consume it's called a megawatt and so similarly when it comes to food production if we can eat whole foods, mostly plants, and not too much, like Michael Pollan says, Um, we can feed the whole world because it turns out if you're mostly vegetarian, and I like to add some small fish to them because they're one of my favorites, and we plan to grow a lot more of them, if you're mostly vegetarian and grow crops and eat those crops on your farm, there's plenty of food for everybody, including the animals and the wild animals, and we don't need to You know, have these huge amounts of methane emissions associated with cattle and livestock and all the rest. Now we can, you know, if we we need to have dairy or something, we can feed those cattle some seaweed. Less than one percent seaweed can cut ninety percent of their methane emissions. And so this is all about building a new feed supplement for livestock, and that is whole seaweed. They like to eat seaweed anyway, and this makes them happier, healthier, and heavier. And so it is a great thing for us to do. And there's a billion cows all around the planet. So if we can get them to, you know, basically provide them seaweed salt licks, and they're out on the pasture, hopefully most of the year, then we can actually turn this around. And with one part seaweed and two parts rotational grazing, we can go to carbon negative dairy within our lifetime. I think within the next decade, if things go well.
0: There's more cows in Montana than people.
2: I believe it. You know, so it's all about getting those cows to burp less and fart less, and getting to eat some seaweed, which they love to do. We just need to supply the seaweed and enable them to basically cut their methane emissions by a factor of 10.
0: On the insulation scale, our house is probably like minus five because we had uh, somebody come in uh, and check our insulation and we have barely any. We don't have very much insulation, not barely any. So this house was built in 1977. So we just got a wood stove, which is is that better than baseboard heating?
2: Well, it is good. To have, I mean, a wood stove is renewable energy. It takes a lot of work to keep it going. And, you know, it's, it's nice to, to reduce the amount of wood you have to use each year because you got to chop that wood. you got to put it in the fire. You know, it's like how much wood do you use every night? It's a lot, you know, it's great when you can, it's worth taking the time to winterize and insulate your home. But, you know, renewable energy is a great way to heat the house. So as long as you've got enough trees around, you don't have to keep chopping them down all the time. If you've got enough dead wood from the forest and it keeps, you know, that's in equilibrium, then it's a pretty sustainable process.
0: So on the Climate Foundation website, it tells that you have worked with major companies like Pixar and Microsoft to create new technical solutions. Tell me more about this partnership that you have between those companies.
2: Sure thing. But before I do, I forgot two parts about what we have to do to curb climate change the first part we talked about that's decarbonize our civilization the second part is draw down and draw down means absorb the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and put it into the soils and put it into the deep ocean from whence it came and that is about restoring carbon balance and it turns out plant life on land and aquatic life in the ocean does a great job of fixing carbon and sinking it storing it in soils, sinking it to the middle and deep ocean. And that kind of carbon sink is absolutely essential. And then at the same time, concurrently, we've got to keep our soils and our seas on what we're going to call ecosystem life support. And what that means is moving from chemical soils with a lot of NPK fertilizer to living soils. And that living soil is full of worms. It's full of microbes and nematodes and all the things that are needed for a healthy diverse ecosystem and that means well regenerative farming is really all about the living soil and that's our new understanding you know we had a green revolution in the last century and that was about getting the chemistry right for the soil or at least getting you know adequate nutrients the new regenerative farming world is about regenerating life in the soil healthy soil microbial communities it's like the 80% of the iceberg that's underwater that's the thing that will fix carbon, several tons of carbon for every acre. And furthermore, that's an essential part to uh, making it all work. This guy, Alan Savory in Colorado, figured out, in also in Africa, he figured out that if you graze your cows for two days on a pasture and then move them to another spot for the rest of the month, you keep moving them every two days to a different pasture, and you bring them back. After two days, those those grasses and plants are gonna grow back faster and healthier because they get partially injured but not killed. They can actually grow faster and develop deeper roots as perennials. And when they come back in a month, there's gonna be even more grass available because after injury, the plants grow faster. Similarly for goats, goats are really more aggressive. So you can only keep the goats on a pasture for one day out of 30. But then you do that rotational grazing for goats and you cause the roots to go deeper, the carbon to be more absorbed into the soil. So this rotational grazing is absolutely essential. That plus the seaweeds can bring us carbon negative. So um, anyway, that's that's kind of the outline or the prescription I would say for sustaining, you know, getting back to a healthy climate and addressing that. We've partnered with many companies over the last couple of decades. You know, I I spent a couple, uh, 25 years in Silicon Valley working with companies like Pixar and Microsoft and Dolby on producing great products, okay? But then I realized more than a decade ago that for us to actually get back to a healthy climate, we were going to need to provide some solutions on on a global scale to address the climate problems. And so we've been working with many companies since then to actually get to that objective. So... It's been a wonderful journey. Dr. Bronner's actually provided us with a, a grant last year or that earlier this year I should say for deploying a marine permaculture system. So we're really grateful to them. There are more than a dozen companies and I would say nonprofits and also even governmental grants that have helped us to get this far. And so we're very happy to have their support and uh, we're looking forward to scaling that support as we go forward and really enabling these climate solutions that the world needs on a planetary scale, time scale that's fast enough for the planet's life forms to recover and to avoid you know, the mass extinction that would happen under business as usual.
0: To end our conversation, let's talk about the incoming Biden administration in the United States. So the U.S. is a very large nation and it's one of the most powerful nations in the world. What would be the much-needed steps to curb climate change in the United States?
2: Well, first of all, climate change is a global problem. So cooperation is what it's all about. It starts by rejoining the Paris Accords, and that brings us back into alignment with the rest of the world. You know, the rest of the world has joined the Climate Accords, and that's absolutely essential. Once that's in place, you know, the Climate Accords are a great start, but it's not enough. What we need to do is provide a safety net for all Americans so that they have not only health care, but also opportunities for free government retraining. Because look, there are places that depend upon coal today. right? They've been doing coal mining. They've lost 8,000 jobs already out of close to 100,000. And we need to replace those coal jobs with healthy, sustainable, renewable energy jobs, like, for example, Installing solar panels on your roof, installing commercial and industrial solar, developing energy storage systems that can replace the fossil fuel power plants. So it's about, you know, it's about retraining because, you know, in a few years, these trucks that cross America to transport goods will be able to drive themselves. So pretty soon, there are going to be a lot of truck drivers that may not have the same work that they were doing before. And... You know, as technology accelerates, we need to enable not only training young people, okay, but retraining older people so that they can continue their livelihoods with a new career. And I think it's really important and something that they have here in Australia is first of all, a safety net so that everybody has insurance, right? And they don't go broke just paying for a hospital bill, right, that's the first one. And the second is, if your family is displaced or you're out of work because you know one of the industries like trucking or coal, coal mining or coal power plants is dried up, that retraining is possible and that retraining should be supported by the government. And you know, for people that are already in mid-career, that means not only supporting them, but supporting their families so that their families can continue to thrive at the same time, they're retraining to get a new job and a new career. In Scandinavia, they do this all the time anyway. You're either working or you're retraining. And that's really a great way of thinking about it. Find your next career, the next thing you love to do. That's, I think, a huge opportunity. And that's what we need to do to make sure that we've engaged everyone and that they're all. we can all be part of the solution to actually build a sustainable civilization, one that isn't going to wipe out life on the planet. And that's really what I see as an opportunity. And then finally, we have to rely, we have to restore and regenerate life in our soils and our forests and our kelp forests and our seas to re- regenerate a healthy climate and it's about rebuilding that plant life fixing gigatons of carbon and and safely sequestering that carbon into the soils and into the middle and deep sea
0: well dr brian von hersen what a pleasure to talk to you thank you very much
2: oh thank you it's a real pleasure
0: That's Dr. Brian Von Herzen. He is the executive director at the Climate Foundation. To end this Best of Episode, let's listen back to one of my interviews, with debbie in new york city after i interviewed her we played a news quiz we're going to listen to that now we talked to debbie earlier this year let's go on to the news quiz so i have five news related questions and try your best to to find the correct answer and let's now let's play okay so first question which of the following people are not in the United States Senate? A. Lisa Murkowski, B. Alex Azar, or C. Tom Cotton.
1: Oh, I'm gonna go with A.
0: Which was Lisa Murkowski? Incorrect. I'm very sorry, but that was incorrect. It was ah! Alex Azar. He is in the. Tr- he is in Trump's cabinet. Lisa Murkowski is a senator from Alaska, and Tom Cotton is a senator from Arkansas.
1: Oh, wow.
0: Next question. The two presidential debates were full of name-calling, which quote was not said by either President Trump or President-elect Biden. A, you're the worst president America's ever had. B, don't ever use that the word smart with me. C, get out of your bunker, or D, folks, do we have any idea what this clown is doing? I think C. Correct. That was not said (gasps) by either Joe Biden or Donald Trump. Okay. So let's go on to our third question, which is, what is the title of Barack Obama's new book? A, yes we can. B, America, as I saw it, C, a promised land, or D, the presidency? A. Yes, we can. That was a popular slogan of Obama's, but that was incorrect. The correct answer was a promised land. Oh,
2: this is getting (laughs)
0: tough. And it's, it's 700 pages long and uh it is available in hardcover or in uh, audio form read by barack obama so in 2020 what was the most watched youtube video was it a the trailer for the new movie the one and only ivan streaming now on disney plus b baby shark or c old town road by little Nas x
1: oh i'm i'm torn between b and c but i'm gonna say big
0: it was, in fact, B. It was Baby Shark. Unfortunately, I hate that song.
1: But Baby yes, Baby Shark.
0: Yes, that song. In December, Mike Pence, the the uh, Vice President of the United States, um, announced something about the face the Space Force. Was it A? that members will be called guardians, B, that the, f- the Space Force was inspired by an episode of Looney Tunes, or C, the Space Force seal will include an alien and an American flag.
1: Hmm. A or C? I'm just gonna guess A.
0: Correct, it was that mem- members of the Space Force will be called Guardians.
1: Okay. Pressure of 2021.
0: Okay, so you got three out of five. Good job. Okay, how do you feel now?
1: Oh, I hope I'm invited back for a fourth time. I'll have to study next time.
0: Definitely. You will definitely be invited for a fourth time. It was great to, to speak to you for the third time. Thank you so much, Debbie, for being on News Nerds.
1: Thank you for having me. I was really looking forward to this and I enjoy it. And as I say goodbye, I say, I love news nerds from New York.
0: It's it for this week's episode of news nerds i'm ezra graham i was your host for this week's episode you can find news nerds on the web at newsnerdshost.wixsite.com podcast there you can listen to past episodes of news nerds cow pies and other news nerds extras and while you're on the website please subscribe to our email list that way you get emails whenever we publish a new episode and you're always the first to be alerted You can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. When you're on those three websites, please subscribe to our podcast, or if you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. Those things really do help our ratings. Until next week, goodbye.